Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of Her Gavel, a podcast where we shatter the glass ceiling for women in law. I'm your host, Stephanie Watchman, and I've been coaching and training women attorneys all over the world for nearly a decade. Women lawyers, no matter where they are in their careers, face many challenges, frustrations, and some fantastic opportunities. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing experts to cover many of the issues I get asked about, like managing stress, career growth, law firm leadership, self-confidence, business development, and even planning for retirement. My goal is to provide you with the tools and tips you need for your own professional growth. And now, let's get on with the show. Today we have a very special guest, Brenda Abdillah. She's the author of Outsmarting Crazy Town, which hit the Amazon bestseller list for career books in September of 2020. As an executive coach, she works with leaders who need more effective ways to be engaged with their team and high-level professionals who are considering a career change. More than 90% of Brenda's clients get promoted, land a new role, or address their core leadership issue within a year of hiring her. The rest just takes a little longer. So welcome to the show, Brenda. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I'm so happy to be here. I love the name of your podcast. And I'm a big fan of your books and your work. So thank you. Well, you know, the feeling is mutual. And for our listeners, in full disclosure, I met Brenda maybe eight or nine years ago at an international coaching conference that we were running in Colorado. And it was love at first sight. This woman is amazing in terms of her knowledge, her coaching ability, and her ability to relate so well to what's happening in the world today. So. I'm excited to get started. And, you know, Brenda, we talk a lot offline all the time. And we talk about women and we talk about women who practice law and the challenges that they face. And in the work that I've been doing recently, I keep hearing some recurring themes over and over and over again. And it's, you know, how do I do it all? Like, how do I have my career? How do I have a family? What do I do? As a matter of fact, the other day I was talking to this uh, client of mine. She's a young associate, and she's now seven months pregnant. But she was very reluctant to let her boss know that she was pregnant because in her area of practice, there are no women other than herself and another young attorney. So they're really the first to have to deal with, you know, maternity leave and leaving and coming back. And there's a high turnover rate for women in certain areas of law where they just leave. And uh, in reading your book, which I love, your other book, uh, What's Your Lane, you have a lot of thoughts on this. Would you would you be open to sharing them? Absolutely. Well, you started with, I think, probably the most controversial topic is, you know, when to tell. And what I would say, obviously, it's a very personal choice. But what I would say is that you want to, you want to manage that message. And more than we realize how we say things and the the words that we implant in other people's minds makes a huge difference. So for example, I totally understand that she's seven months pregnant and she's hid the fact that she's pregnant, except for our neurology, right? Our human brain picks up on something is different about her, right? Even if it's on Zoom something is amiss, right? Our brains pick up on that. And she has to have a relationship with these people. And we know all the research about the relationship based on trust. So I would have 
been interested in having a conversation with her early on to say, how could you announce your pregnancy in a way that was reassuring to others and not, it doesn't have to be, you know, elaborate, but reassuring to others, like, you know, I'm pregnant, I'm due in May, I'll be taking a short maternity leave, I'll get back to you with my plans, you know, something like that, so that there isn't this big secret, because it is going to alter the relationship she has when they find out she just delivered a baby and told no one. That's exactly right. But why do you think it is that women are scared or reluctant. I know even for myself, when I was working in the corporate world, I never told my boss I was pregnant until I was four months pregnant as well. Why do you think that is? It's very common practice. First of all, I think we get bad advice. We get bad advice from loved ones. Like look at people, our you know, mother or auntie's age who had horrible experiences, right? My mother-in-law had to stop teaching because she was pregnant and showing. Um, So we get bad advice from people who had bad experience and we get advice under the category of it's personal and it's none of anybody's business, Mm. except for the fact that humans are very tribal and people feel connected to you at work. So some of it is about our personality also. If you're a very uh, sharing person and people know about other aspects of your life, and then you withhold this piece of information. Uh, I can give you an example of an executive I worked with, and she was high risk. It was her second baby. And so she didn't tell anyone until six months, but it was obviously before COVID. You could tell, but she just would shut anybody down that asked a question. And so when she did finally reveal this information, people didn't feel like she had wronged them, but they felt like they they weren't her friend when they thought they were her friend. So it's a really important dynamic. And I would rather see us feel empowered, take a hold of the messaging and, you know, tell people what to think about you. I couldn't agree more. In some cases, if you're like the only woman or there's a few women within a certain division of, of your practice area, and you are empowered to speak up, you actually are creating, like in your words, your own lane in a way. You're, you're really stepping into making, almost plowing the way for others that come in, come, come after you. Yes. And you know, one thing that hasn't changed is women still get the question, oh, what are you going to do after the baby? The reason that I wrote What's Your Lane yeah, uh, which is a career book for moms is because nobody asked my husband that question. And I was furious. Like from the moment I was pregnant, I became pregnant because I got a completely different set of questions than he did, which is well, inappropriate. It. It's totally, it's totally true. And I'm like laughing as you're saying that because nobody does, nobody ever asks us. Ever. So the next question that I have for you, like related to this topic of you know, being reluctant to tell people that you're pregnant, but then, you know, you're, you're a mom, you're working, you're an attorney. Yeah. Can you do it all? Like, how, how do you manage it? And I know you have some, some great thoughts on this. Yeah. So I really like to kind of disrupt the whole process, the whole way that we think. Um, and really, I wrote the book, What's Your Lane, in 2013. And my hope was that in a few years, it would become obsolete, like completely irrelevant. Nope. Because everybody, but no, not, you know, essentially, not much has changed. 
So I wrote down some tips and we won't get through all of them, but the, the key elements are debunking some myths that we carry with us. So one is that if you have childcare, if you have full-time childcare in your life, you're, you're paying someone to raise your kid. That, I mean, the person that says that to you should be slapped because that is the furthest thing from the truth. I mean, our children, when they get a little older, they go to school, hopefully, uh, for six or eight hours a day. Is the teacher raising your child? No, no one would ever say that. But because we have a nanny uh, and, and I'm talking about in order to do a huge job, which most of my clients have, and, a, and to be a, you know, a present parent, you're going to need a nanny or a child care center. You're going to need a housekeeper. You probably need a personal assistant. You might need a mother's helper. And none of those people are going to raise your child. You're still the one raising your, your kid. So I, I couldn't agree with you more on that, actually. I'm sorry. To, like, it's so it's so true. And I love the fact that you're saying it's great to ask for help. Get the resources you need so that you can do it. And actually, it's mathematically impossible to do it without the help. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book is um, the part-time lane, right? Everyone will say, well, that's the best of both worlds. That's it, part-time. Well, what happens with part-time is that most people quit their childcare or their nanny, right? So now they're full-time in charge of the kids in the household and everything, and then their spouse thinks, well, you know, she only works part time, so I'm not doing any of these other things. And then she takes her job, her full time job, condenses it into 20 hours, still does all the work for half the pay. That is not ideal. That is so true. Like, that is so true. You think it's so glamorous to be able to do like, then, then I can do it all. But it's not true. You're doing even more because you're just jamming it all into such a, a condensed amount of time. Yes. And then so another is to, you know, stop using faulty math. I call it mother's math because it's like this twisted guilt mixed with tradition kind of math. So let's say that you're an up and coming attorney and you have a family. Let's say you're having your second child. Maybe you make 150000 a year. And so by the time you put together full-time child care, a mother's helper, some assistance, like a meal delivery service, somebody who picks up your dry cleaning, all perfectly acceptable things. Let's say that you figure out that all of that is going to cost $55,000 a year. And so you start doing the math in your head. Well, if I make 150, I mean, by the time I pay for gas and all of this, maybe I should just cut back to part-time or I should just stay home. To me, that is faulty math for two reasons. One, if you are in a partnership or marriage, why are you not counting your spouse's income? Like why does childcare only get mathematically deduced from your income? That to me is insane. You're a part, you're a partnership, you're a pair, you have two incomes. Well, you're talking about, you are talking about mother's math and how we, we, when did the things you say when you, when we say mother's math really you're just you're always as women we're always taking all the responsibility for yes. everything onto our own shoulders and we're like hang on a second in many cases not all but in many cases we do have partnerships 
Exactly. And the other point, your income is going to grow and grow and grow. And your childcare expense is going to be reduced and reduced and reduced. So for example, finding a little help, if you have an eight and a 10 year old is so much cheaper than finding help. If you have an eight month old and a two and a half year old, right? Cause they need different kinds of childcare. One is in preschool, one needs a nanny or a special, you know, daycare that takes infants. And so your, first of all, childcare is inexpensive compared to the value that it gives you. And you're billing at X amount per hour, that's only going to go up as you get promoted and whatnot, assuming that you don't lose your mind and get totally stressed out. Well, I mean, that begs the question of once you figure that part out of it and you say, look, it's not the end of the world to have child care. I, I did it. I had child care nannies, um, housekeepers, food preps, like everything you're saying, I did that. And I cried a lot, too, because I had so much guilt because I was gone a lot. Um, what do you have any advice on, you know, coping with the guilty? I feel so guilty. I need to be with my kids more. And as a side note, when I when I was with my kids more, uh, I really wanted to go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> I think every mother will admit to experiencing that. Well, a couple things I love in Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, she talks about getting to 50-50 with your partner, um, I, which means that you are sharing the load 50-50. One element that we don't think about is that, so you have your, both have your work, you have, you know, your ch child care, et cetera, but then you have this whole other entity, like this entity is your house the relationships with your family, uh, worrying about your children and imagining, you know, what could happen to them and how you're going to teach them how to value money or, you know, later it's sex, drugs and rock and roll. All of that psychological overhead, even like all their medical appointments, you should not be doing that alone if you're not a single parent. And so um, this, this requires a little bit of assertion on our part a little bit of insistence, no matter what your partner does for a living. And um, it, it means that we have to lower our standards a little bit, right? We get perfectionistic and I have to be the one to do it. And I'm the only one to do it. And, what, now, and that is, I'm just saying like that, that whole concept of being perfectionistic, it really does transcend everything that from, a, I mean, I'm sure you could say the same in working with women we try so hard to get everything right all the time. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, some of that is what feeds the guilt. So I always uh -huh. tell my clients, uh, I use the F word <laughs> and then guilt. So let's, let's say screw guilt, right? Because guilt is part of our humanity and designed to be our moral compass, but we overuse it. So let's say that you're thinking about having an illicit affair. Guilt pops up. Oh my gosh, I would ruin my family. I would break my vows. That's the purpose of guilt. But if you don't do something about it within about 10 minutes, if you don't make a decision but and you keep the guilt, it just wears away at you and it actually makes you make poorer decisions in the future. So if you say to yourself, for example, I should find different childcare because my mother-in-law smokes cigarettes, even though she's an amazing nanny, 
she is exposing my child to secondhand smoke. And you feel that, oh, you know, that guilt in the pit of your stomach. If you don't make a move right there to make a change, then you're going to feel so bad about yourself that it's going to impact your future decisions. It actually makes you a worse parent. Yeah, and we hold off on making some of these decisions and we talk ourselves into or out of, and then we sit with the sit with the, the wrong decision and we're like, why did we do that? And then you go back and forth and you can never like let it go. Yeah, yeah. And I say, you know, resign yourself to nothing. You're not stuck. You don't have to choose between the law career that you worked so hard at and being a good parent. You don't have to choose between your mother-in-law as your childcare person and uh, daycare, corporate daycare that you don't approve of, right? Resign yourself to nothing. There are always, if you can get out of your stress brain, there are always ways to work it out. And as a parent, you're going to change your ways a thousand times by the time they go off to college. And even then. <laughs> and even then, yeah, as we all had our kids come, come back home. Come back home for... So actually, that's a really good segue because I love your book, What's Your, you know, What's Your Lane? And I do recommend to anybody listening that it, it's worth picking up and reading because it gives you some ideas and some thoughts where you might have a lot of blind spots. You might, you might get some awareness here, which is important because we always go about it like we're the only ones that are dealing with this. And it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not true. There's lots, lots of others. And, and as Brenda and I can attest to, you know, for ourselves, we've, got, we've gone down that route as well but yep. here's the other piece of it okay so i've had my baby maybe i'm from canada and i got a full year off <laughs> maternity leave yes that does happen um in the states you get three months but in canada you get a nice long the state you get six weeks <laughs> you get six weeks that's it you're done <laughs> um but you come back from maternity leave no matter how long it is and now what do you do? Like, am I supposed to work, you know, 80 hours a, a week again? Like, how do I manage this? And right. I think your second book really addresses that a lot in terms of how do you know when you're in the wrong space? Like, how do you know when it's just too much and you're going, you're going nuts? But how do you manage expectations when you're coming back into work and the demands of your job? You know, m maybe you're a corporate lawyer and you have closing yeah. to deal with. And sometimes you're going to have to work 70 or 80 hours a week and you just, you feel terribly guilty and it's not something that you feel is sustainable. Yeah. And here we see women leaving the practice of law in huge numbers. They go into the practice equally, but they leave at a much higher rate yes. and do, and they only make it to like uh, equity partnership, but a small number of women only make it up there because family gets in the way. It just happens. So yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. and those other partners, the male partners have wives. And so that's a little bit of what I was alluding to is, you know, get yourself a wife <laughs> in the in the form <laughs> of five or six different helpers. Oh, um, I love that. <laughs> so in addition to talking about outsmarting crazy town and just the whole navigating the whole corporate thing and finding out if you're in the right place, there are other little things like you and your spouse should not be working the very same hours. So for example, even if you can, if you don't have total flexibility and it's not a huge trial that you're preparing for, why would two professionals who have kids leave the house at the same time or start work at exactly the same time? If you can flex a little bit, you can grab yourself an hour of parenting on each end of the day with one parent. Uh, and that can make a huge difference in quality. 
you know, you can, um, you know, stop screwing yourself and don't move, don't take a job that's two hours away from your home, move closer. Right. Um, consider not getting a puppy. Right. <laughs> I mean, all of these things seem so great, but they really add to the burden of the primary caregiver in the house. Maybe if you're, if you must move, you know, you move into a turnkey house, not one that needs renovation. All of these things add up to be crushing for your career, right? It needs to be protected. And so if you can, if you are in the right place, which I know we're going to talk about, but, and you can protect that, like your, your, uh, like you're as important as I think you are, then you have your parenting, you have your work and you have your health and everything else has to either be backburnered or farmed out. Yeah, it's really about prioritizing. I remember that when I was traveling a lot for my job, um, I had a rule and I, I, I stuck to this rule until now and my kids are in their 20s is that I don't do anything that's outside of a five mile radius of my house. Yeah. So if you want to play a sport, it's got to be within five miles. If you want, you know, doctor's appointments, everything has to be within this little area. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, I don't do it. <laughs> and I respect mm-hmm. to it. And I saved myself a lot of a lot of travel because I see, you know, our schedules when especially as your kids get older, you're I see parents running all over the place. And, and that's a yeah. choice, right? That's totally yeah. a choice. But my choice was no, we're we're sticking within this little neighborhood. <laughs> well, and there's a standard. I mean, the standard has gotten so much worse, even in the 20 years since I started parenting. Um, Now you have to run your kids all over the place. They're all going to choose different schools if they're in Colorado, right? Uh, Not all the states have that, but in Colorado, we have choice. So you're driving one to here and one over there and one over there. And you have to be smoking hot too. You have to look great and be skinny and be super hot and well-read. And it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. And I think I think what you're saying is true. It's that if you have a partner, you have to share you have to share the workload with the partner. You have to share the decision making. So many times the primary parent feels like they're the one that has to make all those major decisions about doctor's appointments, dentists, orthodontists, school meetings, all of that. And and when you have a good partner, you share in all of that and it's not just on your shoulders. Um, you know, in you have so much experience in working with with women and working in business. I really would like to know a little bit more about your thoughts. I read your book, Outsmarting Crazy Town, which I think is like, I loved it. Like I was telling you, Brenda, I sat in my parking lot out in my in my garage, just like listening to the next chapter. Because what, what, what I really loved about this book is, first of all, it's a story. It's a novel. It's a story about going to the office and things aren't the way they're supposed to be mm-hmm. and things are changing. And this happens in law firms as well. Yeah. So, you know, some I, I see a lot of my law firms that either get absorbed by bigger firms or go through major transition and change. And when that happens, the impact that it has on the employee mm-hmm. is great. Like things are changing. What do I what do I do? Or I'm showing up at the office. Now there's a new chair uh, department chair who is just impossible to work with. Like yep. you know, every few years they change chairs in, in legal in legal departments. And this new chair is, a, and I've heard this happen, is a womanizer and he belittles women and he says, just show up to meetings and look, you know, look cute. Yeah. Yep. Don't you worry your pretty little head about it. 
Yeah, like just yeah. we just need we just need representation from whatever it is. So you have a new chair, yeah. and this chair is notoriously awful. And how do you know, like, when you're in Crazy Town? Can you explain a little bit what Crazy Town is? How do you know when you're in it? Yeah. And then some of your thoughts on doing something about it. Yeah. Well, I named it Outsmarting Crazy Town because I needed a, of course, I have a confidential relationship like you do with all of my clients. So I could never kind of say to my family, oh, you won't believe what I heard today. Um, and so I needed something to put a bucket to kind of put these crazy stories into because so much pain and suffering can happen at work. You know, there's a, the, like the gentleman that you described, or maybe it's a female colleague that's incredibly competitive and out to end your career. It happens all the time. And so it helped me for my own brain to come up with a term for it, but it helps me with my clients as well, because the way that our corporate world is, it's not really going to change, right? Mergers and acquisitions are going to have a huge impact on our lives and they will continue. People who shouldn't get promoted are going to get promoted, right? People who are incompetent are going to get promoted. Yes. Uh, and so that is not going to change. So what I, to me, crazy town is if it's just personal hell for you, then that counts as crazy town. You may be in a corporate culture that is fabulous, but you're on a trial for the next two and a half years with somebody who you loathe, right? That's hell. That's crazy town. Yeah. So instead of changing or quitting, which we're so tempted to do, I came up with kind of four keys to kind of navigating crazy town so that you can feel more agency and more empowered in your career. And the four keys are deal deal with stress like a boss. We do not even understand how much stress we have and stress changes who we are and it changes how we see things. So you've got to deal with that, that big stress that happens. Another is to figure out your career superpower. So to think about yourself in terms of strengths and the problems that you like to solve, that'll help you figure out if you're in the right place or not, uh, what your blind spots are. Uh, and these are usually in the realm of communication. Mm -hmm. uh, for I think 90% of us have a kind of a blind spot about how we come across sometimes. Uh, and then activate your network. And for example, my relationship with you, like we met some years ago and look how much we've done for each other in those years. So imagine if we hadn't gone to that event or we hadn't reached out or followed up with each other. So it doesn't have to be a thousand people in your network, but caring and feeding your professional network can save you when you need it the most. I think it's important. I think that's something, especially as you're um, evolving in your career, that you really understand how you how to build and, and build those relationships within your network because they do they do pay off in so many ways. Even if you're networking with other other women who are in the same situation as you or who, or who are way ahead of you to find even mentors and sponsors within your network to support you. In your book, you talk a lot about that, about, you know, find a mentor, find somebody that, yes. that can guide you. Tell us more about that. Yes. And I know you teach that in your program too, because it is essential. 
Now, first is definitely the stress, but as you kind of get yourself unraveled and peel yourself off the ceiling, just imagine if two years ago you had networked with somebody who's way ahead of you in your specific area of law, and then you reached out to her and said, boy, this chair is a real chauvinist, and I've, you know, I've just about had it with him. What if she said, you know what, we have an opening and I'm going to put your name at the top of the list because you need to come over here. Done, right? Yeah. And so that's the kind of asset that uh, now if you, you know, if you decide to quit or you get fired and then you try to develop a network, it's not too late, but it's kind of late. Much better if you develop it when you don't need it. It's so true. And I, you know, there's so many great points that you bring up in the book about, you know, learning to deal with your stress, finding your career superpower, your blind spots, leveraging your network. One of the fa my favorite chapters, though, I love the titles, by the way, <laughs> the great titles, but going to ugly. Oh. Can you talk? I, I'd love to be able to leave our listeners with with something that they can actually put into action. And I think going to ugly might be a good one. What do you think? Okay, good. Okay. Yeah, so our, especially for the Americans that are listening and following your podcast, it's very American to kind of put a positive spin on everything. But from a coaching perspective, that's missing a critical point. And that critical point is complaining, not complaining in the way that we usually do to our girlfriends or our spouses, but to productively unleash everything that you're upset about. So let's go, let's talk about maybe it's that uh, peer who maybe is a different practice group leader who is coming after you, right? She is trying to derail your career and it's very evident that she's trying to do that. Well, one of the ways that you can sort of get more strategic about it is to spend five minutes and a piece of paper or a voice recorder and just complain about what's going on. It gets it all out. You go to the ugly. You, this is not where you're taking responsibility or being a good person. This is where you are like blasting only to yourself or your coach or your therapist, um, not to girlfriends because they tend to, you know, try to problem solve with you. Um, so you get it all out and then you start looking at it. So I have some questions I ask that I, uh, the, the character in the book goes through, of, you know, what's the worst part of this? Articulating that can give you a real moment of clarity. And um, what have I tried? And then you can list all of the things that you have tried to mitigate this nightmare peer of yours. And then what am I willing to try that I haven't tried yet? And lo and behold, in five or 10 minutes, your brain can start delivering some real strategy that can help you kind of navigate your way out of this ugly situation. I think that's a that's a great tip because so often what we do is we just kind of play the tape over and over and over and again again about what's going wrong, what's going wrong, what do I hate, what do I you know, what's what's getting me upset. And we don't ever look outside of that. We don't know the questions to ask ourselves to even think outside of that ugly box. Yeah, and I think we think it doesn't deserve any more of our time, but it is getting time. It's playing a record in your brain over and over, like you said. And so taking time to process it can be incredibly liberating. And I've gotten some of the funniest follow-up stories from my clients after they do the exercise 
they're, they're like, I cleaned out my garage. I cleaned out my refrigerator. <laughs> then I wrote a going to the ugly about my mother. And <laughs> then I shredded it. You know, it's like, it, you know, it's, it's a good kind of, you know, unburdening. Yeah, it's very, it's very cathartic to do something like that. There's one other thing that um, I thought was really interesting in, in the book that I wanted to share also, just like some highlights for me, was um, I think the main, when the main character wanted to quit, he's like, you know what, I'm just going to quit and like, start a surf store or something. And when I was in the corporate world, I used to think I had so much pressure from my job. I used to think, you know, it would just be easier to sell shoes retail. Like, I'm just going to do that. And you have it. You, you kind of coined something around that. Yeah. What, it's what, called what, the stress you know, fantasy. The stress fantasy. I just want to share that with you because with the audience, because I think that we all have stress fantasies. Let's talk a little bit more about yeah. that. It's funny. Just a few weeks ago, I spoke with a very highly specialized attorney and she does um, IP law and, um, you know, which is very hot right now, right? Intellectual That's property. And she wants to open a bakery. <laughs> yeah. She's going to throw away her 20 years yep. of IP expertise. She does not hate the law. She's just super burned out. And so I think it's important now, you know, there are a few stories out there of somebody who, you know, throws away their entire career and opens a bakery. Um, but the chances are that if you can just deal with your stress, be open to the options that you have available to you, then you may realize that, you know, for example, I asked her, you know, what do you know about starting a small business, about leasing property, about hiring hourly temporary part-time people to run your bakery. Um, what about commercial baking? She knew <laughs> none of these okay. things, right? She had a fantasy. Yeah, it just sounds really good. And so I think it's much more of an indicator of, wow, I am really stressed out and I need to address my burnout rather than getting a lease on a bakery. And, and that's exactly it. We all have these fantasies where we think everything's going to be easier on the other side. And, and really what we're talking about here today is, is being aware, like know what's going on, put a flashlight into the darkness to see what, what's really happening and know how to ask yourself the right question so that you can come up with the right answers. I think what you're saying, and, and as a coach, we know this, is that you have so much wisdom within yourself and we, all, we don't always listen to our own wisdom. Mm-hmm. No, we don't. And so I, I can't believe how quickly the time has gone. I know. We could just keep talking and talking and talking. <laughs> but I do uh, urge our listeners, like, pick up, pick up either one or both of Brenda's books, What's Your Lane or Outsmarting Crazy Town. They're amazing reads. And if people wanted to learn more about you and what you do, how can they best reach you? Well, thank you. The easiest thing is to just uh, type in outsmartingcrazytown.com because that takes you to my book page, my website. Um, you can download from that area. You can download Stress Less for Better Success, which does have the going to the ugly exercise in it, and that's free. Um, so thank you. Yeah, outsmartingcrazytown.com. Fantastic. I think this has been a great uh 
enlightening conversation from, you know, how do you deal with motherhood in the practice of law so to how do you deal with a crazy work environment. We've, cover, we've covered a lot today. So thank you so much for your time, Brenda. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Her Gavel. Make sure to subscribe and rate us. For our show notes and information on upcoming episodes, visit our website at hergavel.com. And if you'd like more information about coaching, training, or any of my books, please send email to stephanie at hergavel.com. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode of Her Gavel, where we will continue to shadow the glass ceiling for women in law.